I'm John Dennis. It's Tuesday the 3rd of November. Today, thousands of families could lose out on free nursery places because of new rules on government funding. That's what head teachers warned today. Basically, we see complete decimation of the state sector early years provision. Also today, postal workers step up the pressure on Royal Mail over its use of temporary staff. We hear from the head of the union, Billy Hayes. Royal Mail traditionally takes on uh, what's called casuals or agency workers in the run-up to Christmas, but all the evidence is they're taking uh, people on way above that. And what does it mean to be French? President Sarkozy is accused of dabbling in nationalism as he instigates a debate on national identity. Besson himself has talked about the burqa. They've also talked about the tricolore flag. Another subject is whether or not the Marseillaise, the national anthem, should be should be uh, taught and sung um, in schools. Guardian Daily with John Dennis on Guardian.co.uk. First, here's Bill Overton with the news headlines. It's D-Day for the Lisbon Treaty. The last hurdles expected to be cleared today in the Constitutional Court of the Czech Republic. The court will rule on a final objection to the treaty that it would create a superstate. If it does throw the case out, then the president can sign the treaty, which will mean all 27 EU countries have approved it. Here in Britain, plans will be announced to break up the two banks bailed out by the government, RBS and the Lloyds Banking Group. The European Commission's insisted on the changes because of the massive public investment. Lloyds is expected to sell off the Chelten and Gloucester and intelligence finance companies. RBS are likely to give up Churchill and Direct Line. Yesterday, RBS announced it wanted to get rid of nearly 4,000 staff. The recessions also led to almost half the number of company directors having their pay frozen this year. The Institute of Directors survey shows one in 20 have taken pay cuts. And the pressure group, the Campaign to End Child Poverty, says the number of families living on benefit has increased over the past year. The group reckons that two million children in Britain now have no parent in work. Police are making a fresh appeal on the internet for help in the search for missing toddler Madeleine McCann. They have made a one-minute film of how she might look now, two years after she disappeared while on holiday with her family in Portugal. The police from the Child Exploitation and Online Protection Centre, CEOP, are appealing for internet users to spread the video around the world. It's available at ceop.police.uk. The Sun and the Mirror put a picture from the video on their front pages showing Maddie as she might look with a tanned face if she'd been taken to Morocco. But the Sun's main stories about a new baby for Wayne and Colleen Rooney. While the Mirror speculates on the Irish twins competing in X Factor, they can't sing, they can't dance, but Louis says they can win it. That's the phenomenon of John and Edward, now known as Jedward. The photo on our front page is of a heroic British bomb disposal officer. It says Sergeant Schmidt defused 64 bombs in Afghanistan. The 65th killed him. Our lead story is that a cash squeeze threatens free nursery places after a government cash cutback. But we also report after the row over sacking the government's chief drugs advisor. There's now to be a full inquiry. The Times features the Home Secretary's admission that we got it wrong on immigration. The Independent makes President Hamid Karzai Afghanistan its splash under the caption victory for a crooked, corrupt and discredited government. The Telegraph uses its sources in the Conservative Party to report leader David Cameron is set to announce a Tory government would not, after all, give voters a referendum on the Lisbon Treaty. That story and more news at guardian.co.uk.
Funding cuts will force England's state-run nurseries to lay off staff, increase class sizes or even close. That's what head teachers are warning today. Mick Brooks is the General Secretary of the National Association of Head Teachers. He says new government rules could mean thousands of families will lose out on free nursery education. The evidence that we have is that the gold standard of achievement uh, in, in the early years sector are standalone nursery schools. And it's difficult to see how any of them are going to survive uh, the change in formula. Basically, we see complete decimation of the state sector early years provision. And we have been uh, warning both the Secretary of State and DCSF about this for quite a while now. Because what I think is going to happen, unless there are, there are some, there's some change, either in withdrawing the, the change uh, until it's been uh, fully thought through, or in having some step change to to the formula to allow adjustments to happen. What's going to happen is that on the eve of the general election, there are going to be closures of early years provision are going to be announced right across the piece. And we've got information from London, from Hull, from other parts of the country as well, uh, where this is causing problems. And the, the formula that's been devised is open to some interpretation by local authorities. And what's happening is patchy but where there is no provision for changing that formula and making it fit circumstances, uh, then we're going to see real problems. Because the rules are designed to distribute funding more fairly. They, they are designed to distribute uh, funding more fa- fairly, but um, the rule could be interpreted that actually running a, a playgroup a play in, a, in a garage is going to attract the same funding as run, running a nursery centre. So I can understand from uh, colleagues in the private voluntary and independent sector of uh, wanting a greater share of the cake. But I think you, if you're simply going to divide up the current share of the cake, then um, it's going to end up with, with real loss, real turbulence, and, and loss of provision in other places. What should have happened uh, if, um, if there is going to be an adjustment is that uh, more funding should have been put in to enable there to be a funding up to a level rather than decimating some areas. I mean, just say again about the, the nursery schools, this is the jewel in the crown. 87% of nursery schools have provisions either good or better, according to Ofsted. And I, I really don't think uh, that I would want to be in the Secretary of State's shoes um, if those schools are going to be faced with closure. I don't think parents will understand that one jot. Mick Brooks, many thanks. And there's full coverage at guardian.co.uk slash education. Also on The Guardian's website today. Hello, I'm Catherine Shaw. I edit The Guardian's film website. And uh, all this week we've got John Ronson taking over the site, commissioning, writing, blogging, doing an audio slideshow, lots of very exciting, mainly goat-related content to tie in with his new film, The Men Who Stare at Goats. And on today's site, John's going to be blogging about something topical, which we're not even sure what it is yet. And also Zan Brooks meets 50 Cent and Brenda Blethyn to talk about their new film Dead Man Running. And we find out how well This Is It did in the UK. All that and much more at guardian.co.uk slash film. A new pedestrian crossing system was launched yesterday aimed at reducing congestion at London's Oxford Circus. The £5 million scheme was inspired by a crossing in Tokyo and it involves removing a lot of the clutter and allowing people to cross diagonally. The London Mayor, Boris Johnson, said Oxford Circus, the intersection of Regent Street and Oxford Street, was one of the world's greatest crossroads. And I went along to see what Londoners, commuters and tourists thought of it. 
I'm on the southeast corner of Oxford Circus and the traffic's moving rather tentatively, I have to say, over this new crossing. I'm just standing with my back to uh, shop Tent Tezenis, where Shelley's used to be, uh, overlooking over towards Henny's. And it's unbelievable, really. It's just no, there's no fences. Where's that to all the fences? Uh, there seems to be just as many people, but there just seems to be more space. It's as if they've managed to somehow expand Oxford Circus by pushing the buildings back. Out of force of habit, I'm crossing, not diagonally, but, oh, actually, I will cross diagonally, why not? And the people moving in all sorts of directions. People, some people look stunned expressions on their faces, but that could be because they've never been to London before, some of them. Uh, let's find out what some of them think about it. I walked over it earlier on when I first got here. It's a brilliant idea. Yeah. <laughs> Do you come to Oxford Circus very often? Oh, a few times a year. Yeah. Oh, well, I haven't used it yet, but it's good. Yeah. It seems to be, I mean, it's changed the appearance of Oxford Circus. Yeah, it's not so busy either, we've noticed. We noticed that earlier, that it wasn't quite so busy as you're trying to cross when you come out the tube station and that. I'm now standing with my back to the southwest corner, United Colours of Benetton uh, behind me. And. Uh, I'm not going to be able to cross diagonally again, am I? But buses are coming out. It's slightly confusing to someone who's very familiar with Oxford Circus. I can't quite believe what's going on, but in time-honoured fashion, being a Londoner, I'm just going to try and nip between the traffic and not even wait for the lights to change. Here I come. Let's try and speak to some more people. Excuse me, I'm from The Guardian. I'm just trying to find out what people think of the new crossing at Oxford Circus. Well, I've just, I've just come here and I was just having a look around to see what it was like, actually, because I used to work up in this area and it's changed completely since I was here. <laughs> I mean, today is the first day that they've, there's no fences, as you can see, and you can actually cross yeah. diagonally. I mean, yeah. it seems to change the whole um, atmosphere of the place. I think, it's, I think it's lovely, actually. It's certainly easier to get across. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I should have done it years ago. They should have, yes. <laughs> Guardian Daily. News and reports from around the world. Striking postal workers are taking Royal Mail to the High Court this week. They say 30,000 temporary staff are being used as strike breakers. Meanwhile, talks aimed at halting the industrial action are continuing. Billy Hayes is General Secretary of the Communication Workers Union. Would you be surprised if this dispute is continuing beyond Christmas? I would be, because... uh be very surprised but you know obviously at the end of the day we do what take necessary to get it resolved uh, i don't think that's the sense of where the government is on this where raw mail is on this and certainly from the cw's point of view we want to get this matter wrapped up and sorted now you've got a court case coming yeah. up this week uh, tell us a bit about that well what it is is in in this country it's illegal to use agency workers to break a strike uh, and we think there's evidence uh, of, of raw mail doing exactly that Royal Mail traditionally takes on uh, what's called casuals or agency workers in the run-up to Christmas, but all the evidence is they're taking uh, people on way above that to break the strike, uh, and we believe that's illegal, and we hope to be in court Wednesday or Thursday of this week. And what would be a satisfactory outcome for you? Of uh, the court case? Well, a uh, satisfactory outcome with the court recognises there's law-breaking taking place being sanctioned by Royal Mail and being sanctioned by the government. And would you be seeking compensation for that? Well, definitely. Uh, I mean, what the nature of the compensation is a matter for, for the, uh, the, the judge in the court to decide. But at the moment, we're not going to sit back and see law-breaking take place by a government uh, corporation. 
Billy Heismanny, thanks for talking to us. Thanks a lot. The Swedish crime writer Stieg Larsson died before his Millennium Trilogy sold millions of copies around the world. Well, since then, his father and brother and his long-term partner have fought a battle over his inheritance. The Guardian's Esther Adley is here with the details. Esther, what's this row about then? Well, as you say, Stieg Larsson was unknown, relatively unknown, certainly not known as, a, as an author when he died in 2004. He was just 50, so it was very sudden. And he had left the manuscripts for three crime novels, which went on subsequently to be enormously successful. They've pub- published in Britain as um, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo is the first in the in the series. And the third, The Girl Who Kicked the Hornet's Nest, is just published here. Um, so he sold millions around the world and is obviously worth a few bob. But because he and his partner had not married ever, they'd been together for 32 years, so really since they were both teenagers because they had never married she was left with nothing and the royalties from the estate have defaulted to his father and his brother and he didn't leave a will he didn't leave a will and presumably didn't expect to to drop dead at 50 he was he was a very kind of vocal anti-fascist campaigner and he was also an active campaigner on things like domestic violence and whatnot so the life of a multi-million author was certainly not what (laughs) he had expected and it seems that he had no expectation of vast wealth and therefore had made no plans as to what would happen to his wealth after his death. There was one will that was found which was not judged to be legally binding because he hadn't witnessed it. And it was an early will from the 70s where he'd left his money to a local branch of the Communist Party. So clearly this was not something that he had <laughs> thought, what if I end up with um, £20 million, which is what his estate is, is estimated at at the moment. Are the two parties any closer to reaching a deal? It's, it's a sorry tale really to see it sort of descending into real acrimony the father and brother haven't disclosed how much money they have made and it's likely they're they'll make an awful lot more because clearly Hollywood is very interested in these best-selling books now. And yesterday they gave an an interview to a Swedish daily paper um, in which they said, well, look, we'd be happy to offer Eva Gabrielsson, which is his partner of 32 years, we'd be happy to offer her €2 million, um, just shy of £2 million. And, you know, sort of as a goodwill gesture, really, not acknowledging any claim that she may or may not have on the money, but saying, you know, she was part of Stieg's life and she deserves to ha- to have a comfortable life from now on. She has given this, it would be fair to say, a certain amount of short shrift saying, I can't believe this is the sort of thing that um, they want to discuss through the media. And so the lawyers are now talking about it and um, we'll see if any arrangement is come to. But I think Eva Gabrielsson would say that she is interested in control of the estate in terms of what happens to it as much as to the money. It's probably for the observer to judge how much the money is a factor for both parties. Esther Money, thanks. Liberty, equality and fraternity form the basis of the French Republic, but now the president, Nicolas Sarkozy, has called for a nationwide debate on what makes the French French. It's being led by Eric Besson, France's Minister for Immigration and National Identity. These are some of the views gathered on the ministry's website. Being French means integrating into French society, learning French law, respecting the law and learning the French national anthem. Being French means having values. It's a set of customs and traditions. 
Being French means belonging to a cultural environment, sharing the types of values which help us to live together and to share a common destiny. These days, being French means respecting the French flag and learning to read and write in French. Being French means being proud of our country, of all the people who live here and of all the products that make France's image abroad. Freedom, equality, brotherhood. Quite simply, democracy and republican values, I'd add. Lizzie Davis is in Paris for The Guardian. I asked her whether there was much enthusiasm for the debate. There are the obvious things that spring to mind. Besson himself has talked about the burqa. He's in favour of of banning it, which has been discussed uh, by the French government, of course, in the past and, and is still being discussed. They've also talked about the tricolore flag. Another subject is whether or not the Marseillaise, the national anthem, should be should be uh, taught and sung um, in schools. So uh, it's those kind of things which pertain to the uh, very well-known symbols of the French nation which are coming up now and are making it into the headlines. What other issues that will be thrown up throughout the debate, of course, we, we will see. Are people embracing this debate with enthusiasm? It has thrown up very interesting reactions in terms of the French political classes. Those very, very very cross with the government and Sarkozy are people who work in immigration groups, people um, on, the, on the kind of very traditional left who are saying that this is a, a cynical ploy to defend his right-wing heartland ahead of the regional elections in March. They're saying that it's criminal to combine a search for national identity with a kind of investigation into immigration. Why can't another ministry be doing this? Why does it have to be the immigration ministry? And that was a criticism they had when the ministry itself was created in 2007. But you've also got people on the right who are criticizing it. Former Prime Minister Alain Juppé, former Sarkozy minister Christine Boutin, former right-wing Prime Minister Dominique de Vipin, they've all come out and said that it's kind of pointless a bit risky because it risks inflaming the far-right rhetoric. But I have to say that, you know, one of the people who has supported it has been Ségolène Royal, because she, of course, in her venomous battle with Sarkozy in 2007 for the presidential, uh, in the presidential elections, was one of the first people to champion a return to uh, national identity and, and a look at what what couldn't be considered a national symbol. And the journal, the, the French newspaper Libération, of course, of bastion of left-wing politics has also said that the, that this should be a chance for the left wing to to retake some terrain which has traditionally been uh, been kind of commandeered by the far right Lizzie Davis in Paris. Phil Maynard and Tim May be produced today's edition of Guardian Daily. My name's John Dennis. Thanks for listening.